Marcus Schultz, thank you so much for taking some time. Um, I've been uh, honored to work with you for a number of years. Obviously, together we were part of uh, the ACAMS Advisory Board and worked there. And obviously, you've, you've done quite a bit in the financial crime prevention space. Uh, but what I'd like to talk to you about today, a little bit about that, but what I really want to drill down on, um, and I said this to you offline, one of the things that always struck me about your passion we're all passionate about anti-financial crime, of course, but what you've always been passionate about is the importance of utilizing technology, not just to be more efficient, uh, but to be more accurate, to make sure that uh, the information that needs to get in the hands of law enforcement or needs to be in front of the institution so that they can make informed decisions on risk was really essential and critical. And early on, frankly, a lot of folks they sort of dipped their toes in technology, but don't, didn't really understand it. So you've been very passionate about that. So talk a bit about what initiated your um, interest in technology as a tool here, and maybe a little bit about where you think we've been as a, as a community, where we are in 2021. No, thanks, John. Great opportunity to reconnect on such an important topic. And as you already outlined, extremely close to my heart and always has been. Uh, perhaps it comes, my, my interest in technology, I don't go back now to back once upon the time, but actually it does go back very far. I was always interested more in to understand how a computer works, what happens when you press a button than actually the outcome of what you pressed. Um, so I always wanted to know technology that was always throughout my career. And when I moved into compliance some you know, 17, 18 years ago, I actually ended up leading a, a technology implementation in compliance. And very early on, I saw and learned, unfortunately, of the, the downside of it, saw and learned the importance, the criticality, what you can do, can't do, but also where the pitfalls are. Having done this then ever since, multiple times across organizations, my interest just kept on growing to see what we can do with technology, but also to help people understand where technology can really add what we're trying to achieve and find the right setup and the right technology. So that was always close to me, John. And I think five-ish years of conferences, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you always say all the same type of vendors. And that has rapidly and aggressively changed the last five years as technology became cheaper to develop and to deploy cloud technology, computing power, storage space fell, machine learning firms branched out into the financial crime space. Right. There's a much more busyness now, but of course, great opportunity that brings with it. At the same time, also risk that we're losing a little bit of sight of what's really important. Not everything that shines and glitters is gold, as we know. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things, because I've walked the exhibit hall with you uh, where we were both uh, working at, uh, various roles at ACAMS, and you were always really direct to vendors. If you were at, if, if somebody was either stopping you or you were interested in, in a particular product, you'd ask really not tough questions, but important questions. So um, just in terms of this, with everybody that's flooding the market, so that, like you say, there's all these vendors now, the, the increase is dramatic. How do you separate 
those that are just engaged in what we like to call mere puffery and those that really know what they're doing. So, you know, being somebody who's been uh, expert in this for a number of years, you obviously can't know everything. So what's important for people listening? What should they be asking vendors again, so they can make a, a better determination? Yeah, what you're telling me, I understand it. You're showing me how your product works versus those that perhaps are, uh, let's say, exaggerating what they can produce. There's, of course, that risk that you have the glossy brochures, the sales booth. Now, these days, I guess, the virtual sales booth and the virtual um, presentations, and they're very shiny, they're very glossy, and they promise you the moon. The question is, what can they deliver? And I don't want to have anybody taking away the feeling that I'm anti-vendors, because actually, at the same right. time, while I'm very critical of the vendors, I'm also one of those who will always support in the maturity of cases, not all, but maturity of cases to go and buy a solution versus build an in-house solution. Maybe we can loop back to that. So I, in general, do believe in vendor and the power they bring because they can bring common. I find the right vendor for me. Hopefully that vendor has done a similar job, hopefully plural and hopefully many of them and brings something to the table that I can benefit from and crowdsourcing through other banks, through a vendor is very powerful. However, that, that tough question, as you say, or the right questions, and then somebody says, yeah, you have to ask the right question, but what is this right question, or what are the right questions when I look at the, a new vendor, or when a vendor approaches me to identify, is this right for me or not? I do believe there are some good questions to be asked. First, understand what problem you try to solve. Actually, start within your own institution. It's not that you find the technology and then you look for and do about this problem. And then you go and search clear about what you're trying to address. Uh, and yes, some platforms can do more, but that may not be your problem. So what is it you're trying to solve and really zoom in on this, find a solution for that. And then you can later think about when you evaluate platforms, say, oh, by the way, maybe they're equally good in what I want to do, but this platform maybe gives me more opportunity for other things I need to address later. So that could be a secondary thought, but would certainly not be my primary because my primary is that's what I want to solve, a monitoring problem, a screening problem, a CDD problem. That's what I want to fix, fo uh, focus on and zoom in, and that's what I want to fix. So be clear about your problem. But when you then come to a vendor, they, they have these great presentations. Look, they're salespeople, and they need to sell. That's their job. Right. Like our job is to be financial crime professionals. It's their job to sell. And um, so... They want to, of course, make sure that their product appears better than others. But it's important to find a way to get behind the smokes and mirrors that some of them throw up and then see, okay, is it really doing what's doing? And the important part for me always was if the solution cannot be explained in simple terms, I'm already not interested. So how many times did they have this conversation and you went up? That's a little bit like you're telling me, this like the great bread, how did you do it? I, I use flour. Yeah, sure. All right, I get that. But no, so when, when an vendor comes and tells you I'm, we're using AI and they say, okay, what kind of AI? That was the reference to the flower for bread. And you say, oh, very advanced AI. We've done this research with Stanford University and that, and we have this all sales mumbo jumbo. The question means simple English. Show it to me. Because it's right. not to a regulator either. So it's the simplicity behind it. So 
some, some, why do we love certain products that are actually quite cool in what they do? And some products in the same space are more successful than others quite often comes down to the simplicity. And that needs to be explainability as well. So black boxes, we have heard this before, regulators don't like it, but nobody should like them black boxes. You need to be able to understand it because later after that, you buy a tool, you implement a solution, you will be stuck with this for the next two, three, five, ten 10 years with your institution. So you need to be able to understand it, explain it, manage it. That starts in the sales process. So explainability, simplicity, it's simple really try to use plain English and that you can actually repeat it to your age. You probably need to say you're five year old these days, right. um, but in simple English. And, and that's what I think, that's where a lot gets, gets lost already. That they try to pitch you all of these advanced things and great term, terminology. And then we have reduced 60% false positive for this tier one bank. And yeah, if this tier one bank had a really horrible positive, right? So it's all, so get, get, get behind the noise, basically. Try to, try to really understand the why behind it and not just all the marketing slang that will make it all sound great. And, and, and really focus and zoom in on practical examples in real life, real terms, how this is going to change your life at your institution and really go behind the sales story. Uh, you know, that's that has a- helped me, John, in the past. And then finding, f- finding, finding vendors who are truly honest in this. And again, right. not just in the second round, bring more, more, more brochures along. Uh, you, you make a great point and you mentioned the black box. So going back to what I would say the, a plug and play, which is, as you say, never, never enough. So to you, and you, you alluded to this before. So talk about the importance with some of these products, or maybe from your perspective, all of these products of sort of building in-house plus utilizing the outside tools. So when you make that decision, um, how important is it to have that partnership with the vendor? Because one of the things that we've struggled with as a compliance community is, as you say, don't let the vendor steer everything. It should be, it should be a collaboration, number one. Number two, they may promise you things they can't deliver on. So how important is it um, to, to make sure that you are an active partner with the people that you're obviously spending a lot of money with? Spend a lot of money with, and also probably over the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months, a lot of time to get the right. solution actually implemented up and running. And we have come across this, every, every one of us who is listening to this will have come across this one way or another, the debate eventually buy or build. If you then go to your IT people, and they will ask you, oh, we can build it ourselves. Yeah, okay, building probably cheaper. And now people say, so why do you then support vendors? And why do you tell us to actually maybe consider vendors? The problem is not just the building and the implementing. The problem is the maintenance. The problem is the learning from other parts of the, of the industry that maybe use similar or the same tool. That's what you're going to cut yourself off from. And then you have, yeah, you have five smart guys or kids building this tool in-house. They're not going to stick around with you for the next five years. They're going to move on. There's no guarantee that in-house you can support that. But that's why you need to find a vendor who is almost behaving like an in-house. So what I mean by that is I want a partner. I don't want a vendor. I want to have a partner in this. And I have no problem, absolutely zero problem. And all the vendors who worked with me in the past will know that. Absolutely no issue. Me and my institution helping them to get better at what they do. 
because if I, I, they get better, I will profit for my institution. I will help the industry to get better. If they're more successful as a vendor, then probably I've, I've put my money on the right horse. And so it's a win-win situation in, in all of these. Because I think I need to have a vendor who not doesn't tell me how to do financial crime compliance. I need a vendor who's listening to me right. that they can understand what I need and probably what the industry needs. Not saying that I know all and I have all the answer, but probably I do know a few things more than a vendor having done now frontline compliance for such a long time. And so it's important. Do you find somebody who's listening and not just saying, blah, blah, yeah, here's the roadmap, but also maybe involving you in designing solutions. So with recent vendors over the recent years, we have designed some phenomenal solutions. And yes, and people can say, but they're a, that's their, their product and they go and sell it and make money with it. Yeah, good for them. If I got the benefit from my institution, I helped the industry to get better, terrific. So it's not a money game. It's about, can I build capabilities that help me and the industry overall to be more effective in the identification and the fight of financial crime? Because that's why we all get up out of bed every morning because we want to fight financial crime. And if I can find a tool that makes it better and harder for the bad guys, fantastic. So partners, I want yeah, partners. partners. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. A uh, couple questions. It's a relatively new term, but how do you define reg tech? You mean that new reg tech that I was busy with implementing from my first role 17 years ago, and that was actually not a brand new tool back then? Exactly. We didn't call it reg tech. We, <laughs> That's right. We, taught, we called it generally the definition of reg tech for me is Technology that helps me to meet my regulatory obligations as an institution. So that's what I define as reg tech. And that's not to be mixed up with fintechs where you have players, uh, newly, new financial service players who actually challenge the banks with products in the financial sector. So fintechs for me as product offering to consumers and others of financial products, reg tech, that is what I use as technology in-house. And there's a new term as well that some are playing around with is SuperTech, which is basically um, supervisory technology. So RegTech technology adopted and used by supervisors and regulators. But that's, a, uh, that's the same thing. Bottom line is RegTech yeah. technology that helps me. Yeah. So I've not heard that. You haven't heard SuperTech yet? Uh, no. There's nothing to eat. No. <laughs> and, and you're right. These definitions are... Uh, old uh, tools with new names. So that's, that's, how, that's how I look at de-risking. You know, they think it's a relatively new. No, it's not. We've, we've yeah. had it for okay. you know, 30 years ever since we've been risk assessing. But, so that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, well, a couple more quick questions. One would be, without being specific, when you, you've had a couple of different roles, uh, as have many in the AML financial crime prevention world have, have you ever had a situation where you entered a new role, saw the technology that that particular institution was using and, and had to work pretty hard to advocate, you know what, perhaps we need to change this. So go in, not just change it because you're there now or because you hear that sometimes from folks that say, well, I'm going into an institution and I just want to change because I'm now in, in control. I don't mean that. <clears throat> and that's not something you would have done anyway. But do you go in and say, I've either had experience with this particular tool or it doesn't do what you think it does. And so you advocate to go to a different direction. Has that happened? Unfortunately it has. 
Unfortunately, it has. Why do I say unfortunately? Because the institution at that point has already spent a lot of time, money, and effort. And I right. think it's the effort piece that actually most annoying properly of make, trying to make a tool work that you either see very quickly or, as you said, have already experienced with from the industry or from, from previous um, assignments that you have seen is not delivering what it claims to do. And unfortunately, there are some really, really, and um, often access the C level directly is told, and that's the worst case that can happen. You're told you have to use this vendor because they're fantastic. While you see them saying, yeah, they have fantastic connections to you guys and they're really good salespeople, but in reality, no. And then it takes you quite some time and efforts to convince the organization that it's not you who is against the tool, because that's a risk when you say, oh, I don't, I don't like that vendor. Who you against the vendor? but that this is not the right platform for this organization. And let's not be, let's not be uh, you know, against that, against all vendors. That platform, that vendor might be perfectly fine for another, for another bank, for another problem to be solved or for another situation. But for that situation, yes, great sales, but no. And the problem that you will then find is to convince the organization of, of seeing, the, uh, see, seeing it from the outside in as you do. Not an easy one, but certainly not one, to not one to give up on. But at the same time, as you said, John, don't do this just for the sake of it. So not because, oh, I like this vendor better than this one. I want my vendor who I have experience with from my previous organization. That's equally not smart. And why is that not smart? Unless it is the wrong vendor for, or the wrong type of solution for the wrong problem. Let's assume in print transaction monitoring, there's actually more than three, but maybe three that you have experience with that you like. But the company has chosen number four. Then, be, then I think I need to be also an advice to all our colleagues out there. It's not about who you like and don't like, because by the end of the day, again, assuming it is the right vendor for the right problem, you can make all of these work and you can screw them up all royally. So it comes down to a number of factors I've learned over the years. So if somebody comes to me and say, oh, give me the best transaction monitoring tool or the best screening tool, I said, depends. It depends. Right. Depends on who you already have. And I said, look, here's three vendors. I mean, not going to mention any names here. And you can make vendor A work. And guess what? You can screw up that implementation equally. And you can make B work and C work. And exactly, you can screw it up for your institution equally. Why? Because by the end of the day, it comes down to other factors that is actually completely tool agnostic. And that's too often forgotten, John. And some people who have heard me saying this before, they probably say, oh, here he goes again. <laughs> because there's three priorities that people forget with these tools in RegTech. It's data, data, and data. So what I mean by that, if I don't get the right, the clean data, the data that the tool needs simply at my previous firm, because I maybe had access to that data. And now all of a sudden you file the tool, you really have the circumstances, you have to look at the setup. And most important to me, and that's so often forgotten, and that's also not the conversation with the vendors, is data. I wish, I really wish, John, that a lot of our FCC, financial crime or anti-financial crime fighters out there would spend as much time on data than on tools and playing around right. with tools. Because right. by the end of the day, if somebody gives me a choice, here you have a Rolls Royce of a tool with a rubbish data or mediocre data, let's be gentle, or you have super clean data accessible across multiple jurisdictions, multiple units, and I get an Excel spreadsheet on top of it, I would choose the Excel spreadsheet. Because the clean data is where the power sits or the, or the rich data 
and the right. structured data. That's where the power sits. And then the tool becomes almost secondary. Interesting. Um, in a couple of minutes we have left, uh, and again, I apologize. Some of the tech issues I think are, you're, you're actually in Italy, and I know that uh, we've had We've had some uh, challenges, could be your end, my end, whatever, but we've gotten most of it. But, but I, wanna, I wanna end with this. Um, you, your role uh, at ACAMS is a co-chair and you've been involved in other organizations. So you work closely with uh, various members of the financial crime prevention community uh, globally. So you've got a really good sense of what's working. Um, so give me, give me your, take, your takeaways would be, or maybe, your thoughts on what's working well in our community? What do you think we, we sort of have it? We're not 100%, but we're doing really well. And then what are the remaining challenges? You've, you've mentioned a few already. You've talked about, obviously, the, the value of technology, the use of data, uh, good data, all, all that sort of stuff. But what's, I always like to ask our regulators this when I moderate panels, what's going well? And then give us what the challenges are. So what's going well? I think that we as an industry get more organized, John. Um, we get much more professional and you have seen that development yourself when you go back 10, 15 years of the, the community, and that's for the US, but also globally, the community back then and what the community is now. I'm really pleased to see that people see, uh, some call it anti-financial crime, others call it financial crime compliance, but that people see this, this type of work as a profession, as an industry, and actually something they want to make a career in. Right. It's a little bit to see like maybe what audit was 40, 50 years ago, what maybe credit risk was 30 years ago. It's really fantastic to see that people acknowledge that and invest in themselves, develop themselves, and maybe just do this as I want to be in this space for five to 10 years, which means I have some skin in the game, not kind of a dip my toe into it. And a year later, I do something else. So that's really fantastic to see. Also the networking that you see, the way it's organized now. And that people, there's a lot of user groups, there's a lot of user forums. I think it's really fantastic to see that people see this as something I want to be part of and have great interest in. And we're doing some really good stuff, right? I mean, you have seen this over the years, John. We're doing some really important stuff for society. Fighting right. financial crime is not just something you do. And I'm sorry for any regulator who listens to it. I'm not doing that for a regulator. Of course, I want to be regulatory compliant in my bank. But the first and foremost in motivation is fight financial crime. And then, of course, you, as part of doing that, you want to make sure your bank is compliant. But the intrinsic motivation needs to be to fight financial crime and really truly believe in this and make it harder for the guys out there. So that I think we're doing well as an in, in industry to evolve. Where we can do better is in the information sharing, just globally speaking. Some kind, there's a lot of movement there in the last 18 months, which is encouraging to see. Public-private partnerships coming up more, more and more. And you see now even utilities like in the Netherlands where you want to maybe jointly do transaction monitoring. That's all super encouraging to see that is happening now. We talk about this now for over a decade. And finally, really, I have to say this, finally, you see some of this emerging and has a real potential to change the industry for good. But that's still not good enough for me. There's so much opportunity and so much held back by the information that we do believe that we can do more in that space. Also, where I wish that regulators would do more and help the industry to actually overcome hurdles that exist in that space. 
because that's where the real power lies. It's kind of the collaborative effort. Everybody who has been in fighting financial crime or money laundering, anti-money laundering for a while, you know, the good and the clever, not a good, good, not in the sense that they are good, but the really good ones in terms of the outcome of the criminals, they don't do this with one institution. They do this across multiple institutions, across multiple countries. So if you really want to make it harder for them in the next level, invest all the money I have in technology in my institution only with other institutions, with other like boards in A and B in the US, which is terrific, but that tool doesn't exist in many other markets. There's more that needs to be done in this space, John. It's kind of data sharing, opening up, and think about how can we share intelligence in a different level. Because intelligence-led surveillance, intelligence-led threat mitigation, that surely has to be the future. And we cannot just assume everybody's criminal until proven otherwise, or you just go fishing through the sea, trying to find these two mackerels that are out there somewhere. If you tell me somewhere in the corner where the fish are, I go spare fishing. So having this more intelligent sharing, tell me where to look for, and just don't waste a lot of resources on basic, simple stuff that doesn't lead to much. We are here in this together, and I think we need to remind ourselves, between the public and private sector, we are here with both the same mandate, fight financial crime. And that needs to be just a refresher once in a while, more often. And regulatory compliance clearly must, is a must be, but it's almost a hygiene factor. The outcome should be really effective financial crime. I think that all makes sense. La last thing, if I'm coming to you as a new person, I, I loved your comment about this is now a career because I, I obviously wholeheartedly agree and hopefully have had a, a hand with you in, in trying to make that case to, to people that have looked at our community and said, well, we want to be part of this. So I think that's really important. But if I'm coming to you as relatively new um, and I want to try to get a better handle on What's your advice regarding technology? You've given us some, some really good things to talk about today, but in terms of uh, sources, you know, is it talking to other AML professionals and financial crime prevention professionals and saying sort of, like you say, what are, the, what, are the, what are the right questions to ask, that sort of thing? So if I'm coming in, I'm not a technology person, but I know it's important. What advice would you have for me to make sure I don't make a, uh, I make an informed decision for my company and not a uh, decision based on, on something else that I'm going to come to regret later. It's certainly not to sign up for the next coding class for uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, which I have heard some people telling, so, oh, just sign up for a few classes, learn how to write machine learning code, and then you understand it. I don't believe in that. We are financial crime compliance officer. We are financial crime fighters. We don't need to be coders, but we need to be tech savvy, right? So tech savviness and more importantly, data savviness, that is really something that people need to understand. Understand how data connects, data talks. So I would actually point people away from the technology and actually into data. Why is it important to have clean data? Why is it important? A little bit away from the technology because that changed and that probably right on the back of, on the, back of the ones that you see right now and it's changing fast talk data not technology right marcus thanks thanks so much for your time today Ex excellent information and appreciate everything you're doing and obviously uh continue the the good fight with uh the different organizations that you're involved in and uh like i said you've made a strong point that this should be a career uh place that people want to uh start and hopefully end up and i think you've uh, been a strong advocate for that so thanks so much
Thank you, John. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and um, to all the listeners out there. And um, hopefully next time very soon.